iHeartRadio's getting you in the mood. Yeah, that mood. Binge Sex.Life, Season 2 now. Join sexologist Morgan Penn and Hayley Sproul for a 10-episode journey into the most intimate sides of New Zealand. Morgan's putting her body on the line to find out what's going on inside and outside of the bedroom in Aotearoa. Season 2 of Sex.Life is out now. All thanks to our friends at Wild Secrets. Use the promo code Sex.Life for a 20% discount at wildsecrets.co.nz. I'm Katie Harris and I'm Rosie Gordon. Welcome to this week's episode of In The Loop with the New Zealand Herald. We all know it can be really hard to keep up with the news as it breaks, develops and changes so we're here with your weekly wrap of everything you need to know. From politics to education, crime and even entertainment, we're here to keep you in the loop. On today's show we chat to former Prime Minister Helen Clark about why the COVID response needs to be global. Then who's National's new leader? Why is New Zealand sending troops to the Solomon Islands? And the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, the woman allegedly involved in Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes, gets underway in New York. Plus, the World's Tennis Association takes a strong stance against China. But first... The Deep Dive. Just as things were starting to get back to normal, another COVID variant came out of the woodwork and this one's potentially more contagious than ever. The spread of the new virus mutation has sparked fresh global warnings as New Zealand leaves its COVID alert level system behind. The variant is called Omicron and it's already spread around a number of countries after initially being detected in South Africa and Europe, prompting some countries to slam their borders shut. More and more countries are tightening their borders against Omicron More than 70 countries and territories are restricting travel from southern Africa. And Japan and France have reported their first cases of the variant. At this stage, we have no cases of the Omicron variant in New Zealand. Ashley Bloomfield says it's too early to know the threat posed by the new Omicron COVID variant as it spreads around the world. But we are restricting travel from southern African countries to delay its arrival here. We're going to fight and beat this new variant as well. And as we learn more, we're going to share that information with the American people. At the moment, we have no definite evidence, either clinical or laboratory or at the population level, that the vaccines are are less effective against this virus. We have no evidence of that. The World Health Organization, WHO, has urged countries to prepare for the Omicron variant, saying the new variant's overall risk was considered very high due to its higher transmissibility. And all of this comes as the World Health Organization tries to negotiate a global agreement on preventing, preparing for and responding to future pandemics. So as the world grapples with this new variant, what do we know about Omicron so far? And will the world actually be able to work together with the ongoing pandemic response? We put this to former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark, who co-chairs the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, But first, we speak to Auckland Uni medical professor Des Gorman to find out more about the new variant. Des Gorman. Kia ora Des, it's Rosie and Katie here from the Herald. How are you? Good. If we could just sort of jump right in, um, what do we know about Omicron so far? It's another variety of um, of the coronavirus. It's it's closely related to some of the more recent variants. It's got a lot of uh, the same mutations that they have. How does it differ from the previous variants we've come to know, like Delta? Well, you'd expect it to be more infectious because that's how virus, viruses historically evolved. 
but they also involve, evolve by becoming less and less uh, deadly or less and less uh, virulent. And that, and that makes sense because you think about it, if I want to survive forever infecting you two, the last thing I want to do is make you so damn sick you die. So, <laughs> Good strategy. Yeah, yeah. So the, the long-term game is to infect you enough so that you carry me around and transport me, but that, that, that you survive and do well. Do we know whether our vaccines will work against it yet? Not entirely, but they should do. And will this, I mean, we heard with the previous, some of the previous strains that young people weren't getting as sick. Do we know how this could affect younger people yet? Look, what we know so far is that quite a few of the case reports are of people who are negligibly unwell. They may get it more readily. Uh, they may, it may cause some snuffles, but it's unlikely to debilitate them. The other question I have, and I don't know if you've heard anything about this, but people online have been criticising certain countries for slamming their borders shut against a lot of African countries or nations straight away, whereas leaving their borders open to other countries that may also have cases of this new variant. Is there a reason why some countries will, you know, flat out say, no, we're not taking anyone from these countries in Africa, but other countries that have this variant can still come into their borders? Look, I suppose if you're trying to cut them some slack and not just say they're a bunch of racists, you'd say that there are some countries which historically have been the source of some nasty bugs, so maybe you'd be more reticent to sort of take things at face value. Uh, but frankly, if there's a new variant emerged, no matter where it's a variant emerged from, you'd say, look, we're going to close into, to that country and to understand more about that variant. So it, it's hard not to see it in anything other than racist terms. Mm. Thank you so much for your time today. Those are all of our questions. Good luck. Thank you so much, Des. We really appreciate it. Now for more context on the global situation, here's our chat with Helen Clark. Hi there. Hi, Helen. How's your day been so far? <laughs> oh, well, it's uh, it, it's kind of busy because apart from you know working 24-7, I also support my father, who's almost 100. So. Wow. So you're living in New Zealand? Oh yeah, no, I've been I've been home for four years, but oh, I, nice. until the till the till the pandemic, I was always away. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, to yep. start off with, um, what has your role been throughout this pandemic? I became extremely interested in the pandemic from the time of the first news of it out of China at the very very end of 2019, and then I followed the uh, process of the World Health Organization getting to declare the international public health emergency. I was travelling in Europe at the time and, and was at WHO and spoke with Dr Tedros and then, of course, came home to the unfolding scenario here, particularly in March. Then in July, Dr Tedros asked me if I would co-chair an international review of the experience of handling COVID and that was asked for by the world's health ministers who meet in May each year. So I then spent from July till May this year, uh, doing this this review, which was extremely interesting. And, of course, this work never ends because you then have to get out and promote the recommendations and continue to provide an informed commentary on what's happening. So you could say that we've all been living COVID for almost two years, but I've lived it particularly intensely because of this involvement. And so with all your experience, how would you describe the global response to COVID so far? Sadly, the global response has been woeful and our panel said that there had been delays and slip-ups at really every step. 
because if you had good pandemic preparedness and response systems, there's no reason why a localised outbreak of a disease should lead to a global pandemic. But everything was just too slow. And we have given a very detailed timeline of what happened and when right through from late December 2019 through January, uh, some time lost there before the World Health Organization declared the emergency. And then February was a completely lost month where most governments did very, very little to get ready for what the WHO had already said was you know, a major public health emergency of international concern. So everyone's been behind the eight ball all the time, and that continues. So one of the most concerning things now is that uh, countries are relaxing their guard against the virus when they don't have enough people vaccinated. And this has happened in Europe uh, this year again. So with too low a level of vaccination, they took off all controls. I get really scared when I see photos from friends in the tube in London where no one's got any masks on. This is crazy. And when you let transmission rip again like that, that's when you start to end up with, with variants. Now, the problem with this latest variant is that, of course, vaccination has not been equally shared with Africa and with other low-income countries. And so where you have a very, very low proportion of a population vaccinated and the virus is circulating in the community, you have the chance of more deadly, more transmissible variants emerging. And this latest one, Omicron, seems to be very, very uh, transmissible, much easier to catch. Uh, and it's thought that it may well have an increasing risk of reinfection so that people who've been uh, uh, infected with COVID in the past could get it again. So unless we get our act together as a global community, get the vaccinations out more equally around the world uh, and put in place and, and keep in place public health measures like New Zealand uh, has, we're in big trouble and this pandemic will go on and on and on. Given all the work that you've done, you said that we were behind the eight ball back in February. How frustrated are you that we seemingly haven't made that much progress and that these and that there are still people that are really vulnerable now that we've got this mutated variant of the virus as well? Oh, it's very, very frustrating because the tools to control this pandemic are in our hands. We have vaccines. We need to share them better around the world. We know what public health measures work. We know that if people are masked up on public transport and in close proximity to each other, uh, we know that if we test rapidly uh, for cases emerging, we know if we isolate those who have it and trace their contacts, we know if we do all sorts of things that we can slow this down and control it. But the pandemic will keep going as long as we present ourselves as willing hosts of a virus, right? So we, we are sitting ducks if we're not vaccinated. What should wealthier countries like New Zealand be doing to actively try stopping these variants from popping up in countries and nations that have a lower vax rate? We, we have to be a voice for getting the vaccines out to the world. The WHO has set a target of each population of every country having a 40% vaccination level by the end of this year. Now, as we know, compared with New Zealand, that's 
very, very low, but it would be such a huge improvement. Uh, in in sub-Saharan Africa, we, we haven't reached 6% vaccination. There are many countries who don't have their frontline health workers uh, vaccinated uh, right now. Uh, so we need to share. Now, on the current trends, and the end of December is you know, not very far away mm. now, on the current trends, there will be 82 countries that don't reach the 40% level. Not just don't reach 40%, reach 10%. And as long as this is the case, we're going to face you know, more deltas, more microns, uh, more of these variants. And as I say, they could become more deadly and more transmissible and require us to be revaccinated more often. Have so some nations been like hoarding the vaccine? Yes, rich nations have hoarded the vaccine. Our panel said in May this year, based on our research, that high-income countries, of which New Zealand's one, if we take us all together, high-income countries, we ordered and have at our disposal twice as many doses as we need. Does it all come down to self-interest? Why why do wealthier countries do this when the advice is there to tell them to share the vaccine around equally? There weren't proper systems in place for this pandemic. So if we rewrite uh, the whole scenario now, we need to go into a future pandemic threat with a lot more things organised for equitable sharing. The pharmaceutical companies should never have got away with hoarding uh, the vaccine knowledge and manufacture and not sharing it equitably. Isn't it disgraceful that Pfizer, for example, is heading for the greatest profits it's ever had out of human misery. That's something I've always been really interested in, particularly regarding COVID, is why don't these big companies just release the recipe, per se, of these vaccines? Like, I don't know if I'm just, you know, not super clued up on these patents and laws, but wouldn't it be better for all of society if other companies could kind of make the a budget version or like a non-branded Pfizer vaccine? That's what our panel said, that manufacturing needs to be scaled up and the quickest way to do that would have been for the companies to agree uh, for countries to have voluntary licenses to produce. And then uh, the, the manufacture, the current um, pharmaceutical companies need to hand over the knowledge to do that. Now, there are some things that um, uh, countries can do. There is compulsory licensing where you can issue a license, a public health emergency, but you still need the knowledge. You still need the intellectual property. You know, how do you make it? What's in it? And, and so on. Now, there's a big discussion that's going on at the World Trade Organization that says all the intellectual property rights, all the patent rights should be waived uh, for the duration of this uh, pandemic. That hasn't happened yet either. But all of this could have been handled very, very differently. We could have had the world vaccinated now uh, if people had shared what they had, including the knowledge and the capacity to manufacture elsewhere. And the WHO is negotiating an agreement right now for pandemic preparedness and response. What do you want that to look like ideally and how far should it go? At the World Health Assembly this week, they agreed to start negotiations And they can't agree on whether it's a a treaty, whether it's a WHO convention, uh, whether it's an amendment to the international health regulations and, 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 and what would go in it. So they haven't agreed on anything except to start talking about it. And here's the tragedy. Their timeline is uh, to bring something to the World Health Assembly meeting in May 2024. Wow. May 2024. (laughs) That's over four years since the pandemic was declared. And they might have something 
to report then. I mean, this this is really disgraceful. I often liken it to the uh, response with uh, Chernobyl, when the Chernobyl nuclear accident, which was so devastating, occurred. Even during the Cold War, the world's countries came together, and within six months, they had agreed two new international conventions on nuclear safety. So is it likely that this agreement or convention or whatever it might be will be legally binding, or would you say that that's um, pretty unlikely? Well, this is an issue, because for the Americans, uh, they are very hesitant about having a, quote, legally binding uh, convention, because the American Senate uh, no longer will, will ratify any international convention. But the key thing is that the U.S. should at least let something be agreed, uh, because you can do that just with your government say so. Uh, but then if you never ratify, well, okay, the rest of the world probably will. Uh, so the U.S. is a problem on legally binding. Uh, but then you will also have uh, some countries which say we're not going to have too much interference with our sovereign rights. Actually, what you need is much firmer requirements on notification of an outbreak. No stuffing around. First whiff of uh, a new uh, virus with potential for a pandemic, you've got to tell the world and you've got to make all the information available. That's the sort of thing that the new agreement needs to deal with. If you could get one message out to Kiwis and young Kiwis in particular, what would that be? My top message to young Kiwis, to rangatahi, is please get vaccinated (laughs) because every unvaccinated person is an open house for the virus to enter. And if we are part of the problem of letting the virus continue to spread, Heaven knows we don't want the Auckland variant. We don't want the Fokatane variant. Mm. So we have to pull our weight here, and it comes down to every one of us as individual citizens and residents of New Zealand to do that. Thank you so much, Helen. It's such a, um, such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. We really appreciate yes, your time. thank you for joining us. Thanks. Hey, did you see this? Oh, nah, I missed it. In case you missed it. This is In Case You Missed It, where we catch you up on all the other stories that you might have missed this week. First of all, and it's a pretty big one, after days of drama, the National Party finally got a new leader this week. It was looking like it could come down to a caucus vote, Katie, with the 33 members in the National Party caucus. That was on Tuesday morning. Simon Bridges still appeared pretty confident about his leadership run and a bid for the National Party to sort of strike a leadership deal here and stop Bridges from contesting had sort of looked as though it it had failed. Here's what Bridges said on Tuesday morning. I've got the experience and it says in my first rodeo I have a a real clear sense of what New Zealand should be about and what National should be doing. Yeah, he kept kind of peddling out that line, (laughs) didn't he? It's not my first rodeo, it's not my first rodeo. It sounded like he was going to, like he just had already pre-planned, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to be the leader. Yeah, and then, you know, there was talk about it on Tuesday morning coming down to this caucus vote. Now that would really speak to divisions within the National Party. It wasn't ideal for them. It wasn't a great look. But in the afternoon, the news broke that Bridges had stepped out of the race, meaning that Christopher Luxon got the leadership uncontested. Here is how it went down. Simon Bridges has withdrawn from the National Party leadership race. Chris Luxon will be the new leader. 
We're now going live to Newstalk ZB, political editor Barry Soper. Yes, good afternoon. It was a couple of minutes ago that uh, Simon Bridges, he tweeted that this morning he met with Chris Luxon. He said he had a great discussion. I'll bet he did. He's probably lined himself up a pretty good portfolio, possibly finance. He said he's withdrawing from the leadership contest. National Party leader Christopher Luxon. Tenakoto Katoa and good afternoon everyone. Um, it's an incredible privilege and honour to have been elected the leader of the New Zealand National Party today. And I want to thank my colleagues for putting trust in me and their confidence in me. I am very happy to take your questions. Jessica. Yeah, look, I really appreciate the question because, to be honest, uh, that is something that my faith has been often misrepresented and portrayed very negatively. And what I can tell you about is that my faith is actually something that has grounded me. It's uh, given me uh, context and put me into context something bigger than myself. But I want to be very clear, we have separation between politics and faith. National's Deputy Leader, Nicola Willis. Today was a real coming together of our team uh, to elect Chris Luxon as leader and me as deputy leader, both unopposed. I see in Chris Luxon someone who is a proven leader. I think he's got the goods to deliver for New Zealand in this moment. So after a string of leaders, this most recent leader is really being pitched as sort of a refresh for the Nats. The other thing they're trying to really push is that Luxon's lack of political experience is made up for by his corporate experience with years of him at the helm of Air New Zealand and Deputy Nicola Willis has sort of been pitched as this moderate liberal to his socially conservative. Interesting. It has really been a revolving door of national leaders in the last few years, so I wonder how long this duo will last. So who is Christopher Luxon, Rosie? Yeah, good question. Not many people sort of know that much about him. And one of the really big talking points has been his faith, his Christian um, his Christian beliefs. Luxon is um, admittedly pro-life, so anti-abortion. He told TV3's The AM Show he would not change the current abortion laws if he was to become Prime Minister. But Luxon's brief voting record found him in a group of just 15 MPs to oppose a law banning protesters outside of abortion clinics. He's also now in favour of banning gay conversion therapy. He says he now wants to support the legislation after opposing it at its first reading in Parliament earlier this year when it comes to things like guns. On arming of the police, he says that he's open to the general arming of police, but says that that's ultimately a decision for the police to make. And just finally, on race relations, he said on Wednesday morning that he believes we have one country, one law and one rule. We can target people on the basis of need, not ethnicity. So that's a little bit of a taster of Luxon for you. It'll be interesting to kind of see how he goes over the next couple of months and really sort of put that leadership to the test. There's been a lot of whispers ever since he got into Parliament about how or when he was going to become the leader. Were people shocked by how quickly he kind of rose up the ranks? I think that they were. And we know he's really good friends with John Key and that it's something that he's sort of had quite a lot of, I think, guidance from John Key on. So um, people weren't surprised that he became the leader but it certainly is sooner than the National Party perhaps would have hoped that he'd be taking the reins. I think we all need to keep in mind that it's very strange for a you know a freshman MP to become the leader in such a short period of time, but I'm interested to see how he handles the role and where it takes the National Party, which have really been lagging in the polls. Katie, what's our next story?
New Zealand is sending troops and police to the Solomon Islands to help assist with a looming humanitarian crisis. The crisis erupted last week with three days of rioting blamed on poverty, hunger and frustration with government policies. The conflict claimed at least three lives as crowds tried to torch the Prime Minister's private residence before being dispersed by police. On Tuesday, the Solomon Islands government requested assistance from New Zealand. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said they were deeply concerned about the civil unrest and rioting and have moved quickly to provide assistance to help restore sustained peace and security. Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta said it would be a short-term immediate response, but they would continue monitoring the situation. Our third story, thousands of people, more than 3,500 the last time I checked, have signed a petition calling for Rhythm and Vines to be cancelled. The petition creator Jardine Olsen wrote, We don't want this concert to go ahead as it will put locals in Gisborne in danger of COVID-19 and Delta being spread in our community. She also expressed concerns that vaccine passports could be frauded. Of course, just 76% of people in Tairawhiti are fully vaccinated. That's actually the lowest rate of fully vaccinated out of all of our DHBs. Now, RNV typically attracts thousands of people to Gisborne from across the country. Around 24,000 people pour into the region typically. Tairawhiti iwi have also urged Rhythm and Vines owners and management to cancel. They say they're concerned about the additional stress and pressure the festival would place on local health services. Rhythm and Vines representatives told the iwi they were doing everything they could to ensure the event was safe. All people attending the festival will have to be double vaccinated and have a vaccine passport. The problem is with like a festival, it's not like you're all staying a metre apart the whole time. Yeah. It's not like you're wearing a bubble suit. You are like moshing, you're on the line, you're also pretty boozed and sometimes people are on other substances. I just don't really see how there won't be some form of outbreak if these festivals do go ahead. If you had an R&V ticket, would you go in good conscience? I don't know if I would. It's such a tricky one. And I think like so many people have had a year of wanting to get out and go and do things and be with their friends and party. But I just don't know if I could in good conscience go to Rhythm and Vines knowing that the population wasn't at 90% in that DHB. I think it's a little bit irresponsible going into an area with quite a low vax rate and knowing that you could be exposing a group of people to a virus that hadn't previously really spread a lot throughout the year. Yeah, exactly. RNV is yet to make a call on whether or not it will go ahead. The Prime Minister says it's ultimately up to festivals across the country to decide whether or not they should cancel. So we'll keep an eye on that one and keep you updated. Now, just as we've finished recording, the news has broken that RMV will be postponed until Easter. We'll keep you updated on the Herald website if you want to know more. What's our fourth story? So the trial for Ghislaine Maxwell, the longtime friend and employee of convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, who died in 2019, has begun in Manhattan this week. The 59-year-old socialite has pleaded not guilty to eight counts of sex trafficking and other crimes, including two perjury charges that will be heard at a later date. If convicted on all charges, she could be facing up to 80 years in prison. I follow this saga pretty closely over the years and listen to so many podcasts and watch so many videos about what happened between the pair. And I mean, some of the allegations are shocking. Mm. The assistant US attorney, Lara Pomerantz, said that Epstein and Maxwell enticed girls as young as 14 to engage in so-called massages by showering them with money and gifts. She told the court that Maxwell preyed on vulnerable young girls, manipulated them and served them up to be sexually abused. And of course he died in prison, didn't he? 
yeah, he did die in prison. And so it's really just Ghislaine that's really facing up to the music now. And so far, she's denied everything. One of the accusers told the court this week that when she was 14, she had sexual contact with Epstein. And she claimed this occurred multiple times, including sometimes that Maxwell was around her. Here's what US law professor Laurie Levinson told Newstalk ZB earlier this week, and she expects there will be corroborating evidence. They have lots of communications. They have Maxwell being with Epstein. They have financial records. They have text records. So it's not just one person's word against the other. As the trial progresses in the coming weeks, we'll hear more testimony like this and get to see what evidence there is. Here's what's trending. This is Trending, the part of the show where we bring you one of the top stories from social media this week. Katie, what have we got? So last week we brought you guys the story of Peng Shui, the Chinese tennis star who disappeared, and now the World Tennis Association has taken a really strong stand against China following safety concerns about the star. This is the Grand Slam double champion who accused a former government official of sexual assault. She dropped out of public view for more than two weeks after raising the allegation in a post on social media. That post that we talked about last week as well was actually taken down by Chinese officials. So now the association's chairman and CEO Steve Simons released a statement today saying that leadership in China had not addressed the alleged serious incident in any credible way. He said that while we know where she is now, he has doubts that she is free, safe and not subjected to censorship, coercion or intimidation. Simon made repeated calls for what he termed on Wednesday a full and transparent investigation without censorship into Pang's accusations. Yeah, it is pretty significant. One user on Twitter wrote, This is absolutely massive. It's so rare for a sport governing body to actually put interests of athletes before financial gain. The WTA is doing that and more here, hoping this helps gain freedom and safety for Ping Shui. I think in the past when there has been scandals prop up like I think of the American gymnastics situation the way it's been handled hasn't been very good and so there's a bit more pressure now and I think a bit more publicity on how these organizations actually do handle these accusations and this is quite a cool example of an organization taking a super strong stance against it. Yeah, and particularly when she did re-emerge, everybody sort of thought that those photos and that sort of thing were staged. So it's great to see the World Tennis Association taking a really hard stance here for player welfare. I know, and this is only really breaking as we're recording now, but it'll be interesting to see in the next few weeks what what plays out. Like, will there be repercussions? What will China do? And we'll bring you guys the updates when we know. And that's everything we have time for this week. That's it for this week's episode of In The Loop. This podcast was powered by the New Zealand Herald and was written and produced by us with help from our podcast manager, Ethan Sills. Our podcast editor is James Irwin. We'll be back in your ears next week, but in the meantime, check out the New Zealand Herald online. Follow In The Loop on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. One of the scariest things you can hear as a parent is quiet. But if you do get a little quiet time, have a listen to The Parenting Hangover. It's not scary at all. If she thinks, man, I've had a shit Mother's Day, it's not on me, okay? You're not my mum. That's the kids. The kids should have been best behaviour, and they chose not to, okay? Yeah. They chose to give you crappy presents. They chose to complain yeah. at the nice breakfast we made. I'm just there, I'm helping, yeah. but it's, sorry, mate. The Parenting Hangover with Clinton Jordan. New episodes every Thursday on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.